Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's go uh, before the Lord, before we look at his word. Holy Spirit of God, we ask for understanding, eyes to see and ears to hear, a tongue to speak, your word by the power of your spirit. We ask that you'll minister to us and enable me to proclaim your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, The Apostle Peter concludes his second epistle with an exhortation to grow. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For to him, Peter says, for to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity Amen. When Peter says, to him be the glory, that is a statement of affirmation regarding the deity of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ascribing, that is, glory directly to him. That is, assigning the glory that belongs to him. We are here this morning to ascribe the glory that is due to Jesus, who is the Son of God. He is the resurrected, ascended God-man. Okay, that, in in that section of Scripture, the conclusion of 2 Peter, again, is talking about the ascribed glory of Jesus. In the same epistle, Peter also recounts his personal eyewitness experience of seeing Christ's intrinsic glory, the glory that he has in and of himself, the glory that was veiled behind his humanity. And he says this. You can look at it on the screen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you, here it is, the power and coming 
the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Mark, as we just read, along with Matthew and Luke, record that transcendent event. John, he alludes to it in his gospel. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So Peter, um, along with this John and his brother James, um, are given here in our text a showing of his intrinsic glory. A foretaste of the coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. A preview, if you will, of the coming attraction of all attractions. That is, the kingdom of God coming with power. They get a preview right here. Now, as I've often said, beloved, Scripture from its genesis unfolds for us bit by bit the kingdom of God breaking through. The kingdom of God breaking through. Um, And then it's especially accelerated in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, because uh, the, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what the kingdom is. It's the rule and reign of the God-man, Jesus the Christ. As he himself broke into redemptive history, he himself took on human flesh. He is the Redeemer incarnate, the God-man, who rules and reigns now and forevermore. So the glory of his reign will be revealed in its fullest sense, in its fullness when he comes again. For every eye to see. And then the new heaven and the new earth, we're told, will need no need. Will, there'll be no need for the sun or moon, for he himself will be its light. For he himself is light. We read from Psalm 104 this morning. It says, you cover yourself with, with light as a garment, for God is light. Now here, for a moment in time, the kingdom of God, came in power to be seen, to be experienced, not subtly, not subtly revealed, but clearly made visible in the eyes of these men. This is a moment when when heaven touches earth, and it's obvious that it does. If you notice, there's nothing here symbolic. There's nothing here that is veiled. And some, here in this text, are given the ability to see, not through a glass dimly, but as clear as clear can be, and that is to see the true identity of Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God. That is his intrinsic glory, which up to this point is veiled and will continue to be veiled in the lives of these men. Now, think about this. When when we read Scripture... 
we come and we read the text, we see in full what Christ's disciples were having to piece together. They were having to piece all of this together as they followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. Okay, so when we sit down and we casually read the text, we casually read through a gospel, I think oftentimes we tend to think that they had a comprehensive knowledge of who Jesus was. But when we slow down and we take portions of Scripture, as we do here week by week, and we exposit it, we look into it, we see that that was not the case at all. Now, certainly from the beginning of his ministry, they recognized his authority. He taught like no other. They, they referred to him as their rabbi. They heard him preach. They saw him heal miraculously. They saw and recognized that he had power over everything. So when we get to Peter's confession, as we did Last time, in chapter 8, that's the center of Mark's gospel, and that, as I said, becomes the high point of Mark's gospel, chapter 8. The first human voice who rightly recognizes Jesus as the Christ. Remember, the demons, they, they recognized him immediately, crying out. I mean, they knew who he was. The demons knew. God the Father spoke from heaven at his baptism, this is my beloved son. But Peter is the first human voice, speaking on behalf of the 12, by the way. That's why I say Peter and the 12, it's just the 12. He speaks on their behalf. Uh, We also pointed out last time that that Mark's gospel is a a pivotal point. Um, It's been referred to by some as the continental divide of Mark's gospel. It is the literary hinge upon which Mark's gospel turns because we shift from the demonstration of who Jesus is by the exhibition of his power and his authority, we turn to the significance and nature of who he is and what he's come to do. That's the hinge upon which Mark's gospel turned. And we turned last week. And remember, no sooner had Peter made that confession in verse 31, Jesus then began, the scripture says, to teach them that the Son of Man must, must, because it's according to scripture, he must suffer many things. And be rejected by the leaders, by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and killed. And then after three days, rise again. So not surprisingly, um, Jesus' words shocked the disciples to their core. This is earth-shattering. So much so that while Jesus was explaining that the Son of Man is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, Peter takes it upon himself to correct Jesus. He pulls his aside. He's going to give him a lesson in hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation. He pulls him aside only to have Jesus respond with a firm rebuke of his own. Because Peter had ignorantly allied himself with the adversary, therefore Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because he was seeking the same thing Satan did back when he was being tempted in the wilderness, and that is all the kingdoms of the world can be yours now if you abandon the way of the cross. Just bow down and worship me. Right? 
He then goes on to teach them, the 12, and the crowd that's there, that if you're going to be a true follower of mine, if you're going to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Denying yourself is, is to, to deny really um, all forms of self-righteousness. All forms of self-righteousness. And you embrace the one true Lord who will soon be crucified. So though Peter has been given eyes to see, Jesus is the Christ, things are still foggy. So chapters 8 and 9 are linked together to show us that which had been somewhat veiled and foggy now is unveiled and made absolutely clear in the fullest sense. You with me? Now, the scene before us this morning is the fulfillment of what Jesus said back in verse 1. We looked at last week, chapter 9. Notice, and he said to them, you know, after teaching about taking up your cross and follow me, he said, he said this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, let me say at the outset, some people think Jesus was referring here to the resurrection. Others believe he's referring to um, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Others think that it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And others believe it's the taking of the gospel to all the nations. Okay? Now, in a sense, that's all true. Right? But the bridge of fulfillment occurs in verse 2. Six days, what? Later. Verse 2. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So the time has come for Jesus to follow through on these words, that promise in verse 1, and he gives his disciples a glimpse of what it means when he says the kingdom of God comes with power. It's awesome. Now, Mark's main point in the text is to communicate to us what happened on the mountain, okay? What happened on this mountain? There's three points of focus as regards this, this mountain this morning. It's timing, the, the, the timing of this mountaintop experience. This is a mountaintop experience. Number two, the company on top of the mountain. And then number three, the voice that comes from above the mountain. Those are our three points that we'll look at. It's timing, the company, and the voice. Now, as you read Scripture, um, you're probably well aware that, that mountains most often indicate something important is about to take place. Fair enough to say? Okay, Ab- God called Abraham, right, to go up a mountain and sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And on that same mountain... God provides the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Moses met with God on a mountain. We just read that in Exodus 24. Israel witnessed the power of God from a mountain, from afar, as Sinai shook and they trembled. Who wouldn't? 
God called Elijah from hiding in the side of a mountain in a cave to the top of the mountain. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, same place, by the way. Horeb, Sinai. We all have mountaintop experiences, and guess what? They're not meant to last. You get that? They're not meant to last. They get a foretaste here of what will last, if you get the picture. Now, in order to communicate the significance of this mountaintop experience, Mark pulls out a doozy of a word. Metamorpho. From where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorpho. Morphe meaning form, meaning body. Meta meaning change. So there's a change in his body. This is a radical transformation that takes place here. This is like the, pillip, the, the, the caterpillar in his transformation into the butterfly. A metamorphosis. Jesus was changed here in his appearance. Now, did his nature change, beloved? Did his nature change? No, it can't because he's God. God does not change. Only his appearance changed because he is a man also, and that appearance changed. That's what changed was his appearance, not his nature. Nothing is added to Jesus on this day. So consider the timing of this event. Let's consider that first. Um, Prior to this glorious scene, prior to this transcendent event, the disciples, as we already mentioned, went through something of an earth-shattering experience, to say the least, as regards their epistemology. You know, that is their view of the world and life and God and the Bible. Radically shaken. Because... Jesus' plain teaching about suffering and about dying has shattered all of their messianic expectations. Ruined. And Jesus, having already predicted his suffering and his death, will go on two more times in chapter 9 to do the same thing. You see it in verse 12, and you see it in verse 31. So there you have three predictions in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And sandwiched between the three predictions is this amazing transcendent event. Amazing. Now, this mountain was probably Mount Hermon, just above Caesarea Philippi. Remember, Jesus led his disciples into Caesarea Philippi. That's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And six days after he, after Peter, or six days after his teaching about following him and taking up your cross and so on, they ascend probably up Mount Hermon. We're not sure. It makes sense. Now, since their messianic expectations were not in sync with the very plain teaching of the Messiah, it is quite possible that they're wondering to themselves, as John the Baptist did at one point, hmm, is he the one? Or should we be seeking after another? Perhaps. John did. And then consequently here, the Lord does something for them that's very rare in the New Testament. I mean, this is probably the only place in the New Testament unless you want to consider um, Paul seeing the risen Christ and he goes blind for three days on the road to Damascus. And what he does is he moves their faith to sight. 
He moves their faith to sight for this brief moment, and he lets them get a glimpse of his glory. Amazing. In verse 2, and, okay, six days later, they, they, they ascend. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. That was his inner circle, right? He didn't spend an equal amount of time with all the 12. That's a lesson for us, by the way. And then he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So here we have a blazing, blinding kind of light. This is like the sun's brightness light. You ever look into the sun for more than a couple seconds and you're blurred for 15 minutes? My dry cleaner's good. He's not this good. And he says, whiter than any launderer could bleach them. Okay, so Jesus is up here. So what's he doing? Well, um, I'm going to be citing from Matthew's account and Luke's account that, that add details that aren't here in, in Mark. He's very terse. He's very to the point. But Luke 9 tells us that he was up there praying. And while he was praying, this happened. And we read that while Jesus was praying, guess what the three were doing? Sleeping. It says... They were heavy with sleep. And later, as you know, on the night before the cross, when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes these same three with him deeper into the garden, and guess what they do there? They sleep. But, you know, Luke 22 tells us that they slept in Gethsemane because of sorrow. Sorrow. Now, one commentator points out, he observes that deep sorrow you know, that troubles the soul will make you want to check out. That's why people who suffer with depression like to sleep a lot. You want to check out. You want to walk away. You want relief. You want to escape. So you want to take a nap. So at this point, I mean, imagine the stress on these brothers. They don't even have a full picture that Jesus is going to be crucified. This is really heavy, depressing stuff. Okay, so... Let us not laugh too often about, oh, they are sleeping again. That's where the term peter out comes from. Well, he petered out on me. Peter always fell asleep. My wife and I were praying once, and I fell asleep, and she told me I petered out on her the next day. (laughs) Peter fell asleep. That's where the term comes from. He petered out. So, this is a heavy moment for them to grasp. So they just shut down. Jesus is up praying, they sleep. Now Luke tells us that when they became, it says when they became fully awake, okay, Peter, James, and John, when they became awake, they saw his glory. Imagine waking up to that. Can you imagine? You're heavy with sleep and you wake up to this. A metamorphosis. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them. It's amazing. Now, again, his being, beloved, did not change. His being did not change. It was only the disciples' perception of his being that transformed before their very eyes. Glory that was veiled behind his human flesh. Remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2? He reminds us that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself. 
Never make the mistake to think that he emptied himself of his divinity or his divine attributes. He did not empty. He was fully God, fully man, 100% of the time. What Paul means is that those things, those divine attributes were veiled. They were hidden from us. And that is to say, if you were to walk down the dusty roads of Palestine in that day, passing by Jesus, okay, barring the crowds and the miracles, he would look like any other man. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us there's nothing comely about him. Right? You ever hear about people who are very personable? Or, you know, uh, people who are you know, good-looking and funny. We're drawn to that, that type of a person, typically. They're easy to look at and they're fun to listen to. Right? The Bible tells us Jesus wasn't like that. See, God condescended into human flesh, and he walked the earth in weakness and humiliation. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And here, for a few moments, these disciples were allowed to see his true glory on display, momentarily unveiled. It was like the lifting of a curtain. Pulling back a tarp. They wake up to this. And they're allowed to see Jesus as the Father sees Jesus. As the Father sees his Son. So this radiant brilliance of Christ's appearance, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll immediately think of Daniel 7. We read it. We didn't read it today, but we read it last week. It says, as I looked, the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the Ancient of Days? The Creator, the Father. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Doesn't mean he has wool on his head. It looks like it. He's trying to describe it. His throne was flaming with fire. What we see here is that Jesus' glory is identical to the one who Daniel describes as the Ancient of Days. Identical with the Father. So again, it's not as though something was added to Jesus on this day. This is something he already possessed. This is his intrinsic glory put on display, veiled behind his flesh. He always had it. He had it in in, in the manger. He had it when he was 12 years old in the temple, dialoguing with, with with the PhDs of the day. He always had it. He always possessed it. So here, this intrinsic glory, veiled in human flesh, is now revealed to these men. So they wake up, they see this, and suddenly they go from that, if that isn't enough, they realize Jesus isn't alone on the mountain. Point two, the company on the mountain. The four become six. And there appeared to them Elijah and Mo- with Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. Chopping it up, as we say. Moses and Elijah, right? Who are they? Two central figures of the Old Testament. They both experienced supernatural manifestations of God. Moses, obviously, we know, uh, received God's law in a cloud of glory. The law to order the life of Israel. We read from it in chapter 24. 
We're not too far removed from our study in Exodus, so this should be fresh on your mind. Elijah is an iconic prophet. While Israel, most of the time, did not obey or adhere to God's law, God sent prophets. He sent prophets to solemnly warn them, to remind them, and call them to hello, repentance. Thank you very much. Moses, Elijah, two key figures of the Old Testament representing the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Now, in summarizing the testimony of the Old, of the Old Testament, Scripture often speaks of the law and the prophets, and here they stand. The two are converged together. The, the two converge together with Messiah, who's coming, who's coming they foreshadowed. He was who they preached about. He was the one that they talked about. And this shows us that this transfiguration, beloved, this transfiguration of Jesus, don't miss this, does not happen, does not occur in a vacuum. Okay? Don't miss that. In other words, this is not an isolated event But this scene, beloved, grows out of the fertile soil of Old Testament revelation. It grows out of it. They're here. Elijah and Moses are here to testify that an even greater light is here foretold by the law and the prophets. Friends. Jesus is no walk-on in the drama of redemption. Jesus is no walk-on in the drama of redemption. He is not like Muhammad, a phony, false prophet who steals Old Testament traditions and then refashions them to his own self-styled religion. False, phony prophet. Who would dare say that in this age? I will. Jesus is connected to and anticipated by the greatest men of the old covenant. They foretold of him. They foreshadowed him. And again, beloved, the Bible is one grand book. Don't look at the Old Testament. Well, that's for the Jews. No, it's not. It's one grand book. God's one plan of redemption for fallen sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. Remember this phrase. You probably learned it in Sunday school. The new is in the old concealed. Right? My sister said it. And the old is in the new revealed. That's the Bible. So the ministries of Moses and Elijah here find their fulfillment in the third one standing on the mountain, who's the first one? Jesus. He created them. He's the voice on the mountain. Second person of the Godhead. So he, he's the one who's come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but what? To fulfill. And they were talking with Jesus. Well, Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke says they were talking about his departure. And and that word is the word we get, we use for his exodus. They were talking about his exodus. 
And again, we're not too far removed from our study of Exodus. You remember, we saw there the outstretched hand of God. We saw there the shedding of lamb's blood put around the door frames of the Israelites so that God's judgment would what? Pass over. Would pass over their homes because they were covered by blood. And here, Jesus will bring greater fulfillment. He'll provide a greater exodus in Jerusalem, foreshadowed in Moses, foreshadowed in Egypt, and it'll be through the shedding of his blood. And that by faith and trust in him, whoever believes upon him, God's judgment when you die will pass over you because you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible's all connected, beloved. And then by his death, resurrection, and his ascension, he redeems people to himself. This is what they're talking about. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that conversation? Wow. So after that scene, notice, Peter works up the nerve to speak. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's a good thing that we're here. Let us make three tents. What a great idea. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Okay, this sounds strange, but again, don't miss that. He's scared out of his wits. He is scared nearly to death. Some people, when they're terrified, they freeze up. Peter speaks up. For the first time in his life, this brother did not know what to say. And he did not let that get in his way. (laughs) Amen? Some of us are like that. That's me. So he's overcome by the glory of it all, as any one of us would be. I mean, he'd never seen Jesus like this. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's been following in his dust trail. And granted, you know, he is the Christ, but he has been a little negative lately, speaking about death and dying and suffering and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, he's radiant and he's resplendent and he doesn't know what to say. Who would? So in the midst of all of this fear and confusion, this brother wants to capture the moment. That's what he's after. Now, as I said, this is a true mountaintop experience, man. monumental. I mean, this is the marriage of the transcendent with the temporal. That's what this is. So this reveals something, you see, of the frame of mind of Peter and his theological expectations. And one thing's for certain, this brother needed further lessons in biblical eschatology. His is way off. Eschatology last things. His is way off. Notice, he didn't know what to do Luke tells us he didn't know what he said after he said it. (laughs) It's right there. You can look it up. But he wants to do something. He wants to build something. This reminds me of guys I listened to on the radio today. They want to gather money to build a temple for Jesus so he can come back. Guess what? This glorified Savior is not going to be dwelling in temples made by the hands of man because he is the temple. The temple, the tabernacle, foreshadowed him. He is the temple. And guess who believers are? Stones, living stones of that temple. Peter wants to go backwards. 
There are guys on the radio who want to go backwards. Now, no doubt, this is an attempt for Peter to duplicate the old covenant tent of meeting described in Exodus. Or perhaps this is the Feast of Tabernacles that commemorates the Exodus. That's what they did every year. They, they build little huts and sleep in them to commemorate their time in the wilderness. Now, notice this. Okay, Peter's up there, okay? Peter, Peter knows his book, his Bible. He's just a little confused. Now, he also knows that Elijah is supposed to come at the end, Malachi 3 and 4. So he's probably scratching his head going, well, I don't know what to say, but I got, I got some ideas here. Okay, Moses is here, the law. Um, Elijah's here. I know he's supposed to come at the end. There's the prophets. And here's Messiah, Jesus, in glory. This is perfect timing for an exodus. And we can go forego all that suffering and dying stuff. So let's capture the moment and let's keep it all right here. And people just come up and visit. But this transcendent experience is a temporary marriage, beloved, of heaven and earth, and it won't last because it couldn't last. Because someone had to come and die. Someone had to come and suffer. Someone had to come and do what the law and prophets foretold. Someone had to die, and someone had to rise. Someone had to suffer as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And he's right up there on the mountain. And that's what they're talking about. Jesus said, I've come to make all things what? New, not to go backwards. To renew heaven and earth and to join them together so that they'll never be separated again. But I must die first and I must rise. And then the kingdom, right, will continue to grow and you'll see the glory of it when I come the second time. But I have to die. Peter's attitude here also represents a very common attitude in our world today, beloved, and that is this. People are very happy and content to build a booth of equality alongside their pantheon of false gods for Jesus. Add a booth for Jesus. So long as you only make him equal with other religious leaders, gurus, mystics, and freaks, it's okay if you have a booth for Jesus. Am I right? It's true. (laughs) Peter got carried away in the moment. Peter began to blur the lines right here between those two and Jesus. God the Father will set the record straight right now. Notice, the Father will not allow for such confusion to continue. So next, notice the voice that comes from above the mountain. We see the timing of it. We see the company up on it. Here's the voice that comes from above it. First, notice a cloud overshadowed them. Okay, this isn't the clouds you see outside today, beloved. This is the glory cloud. This is Shekinah. The Shekinah glory cloud. That bright, radiant cloud. Matthew actually says it was a bright cloud. This is Shekinah glory. This is the cloud that came down upon Sinai. 
what we read from, Exodus 24. So this cloud envelops Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and it also serves as a shield of protection for these three characters, a shield of protection to shield them from the full manifest glory of God, which would otherwise incinerate them. You get it? And then a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. These words of the father are words of identification and of affection. He is esteeming him in front of three witnesses, for by two or three witnesses every word is established. And these words, dramatically, beloved, echo the famous words of three phrases in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, this is my son, you are my son, in whom I love, my beloved son, Isaiah 42, verse 1. And then, listen to him, that takes us back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses told the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. You link those three together, those three phrases, and what do we see here? We see Jesus being commended by the Father in his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. The king who would rule over the nations, he's doing that now. The servant priest who would offer himself up as a sacrifice, he did that then. And the prophet who would complete the revelation of Almighty God. He's the Word. You know what God's saying here? Peter, quiet your mouth. No joke. Stop talking. You rebuke my son. When he told you what he was going to do, you need to stop and you need to listen to my son. You see this? God says, this is who my son really is. I'm going to pull back the veil for a moment and show you a glory that, that is beyond anything you've ever seen. And you see him, you see me. Listen to his teaching about his suffering. Listen to his teaching about his death. You listen to his teaching about his resurrection because this exodus is going to accomplish that. He's actually here to save your wretched soul. Listen to him. You see this? Isn't it great? Verse 8, and then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Guess what? When the substance shows up, the shadows disappear. Here he is. We ain't going back. Here he is. The law and the prophets came. Now the one who comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, he is here. He's the greater light. They disappear. They go away. They're there to testify. Amazing. You know, I actually prayed this morning that I wouldn't raise my voice. <laughs> if you're here visiting, man, this guy's really... 
I actually try not to do that, and it never works, ever. <laughs> anyway, pray, pray for me. Pray that God's will will be done there. Anyway, the real, reality's here. Shadows disappear. The stage is set. Jesus alone stands there, and rightly so. Hebrews chapter 1, what do we read? For long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. That means all things, beloved. All the prophecies of the Old Testament, again, which prophecies? All the prophecies of Old Testament finally find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, for all, all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. On the road to uh, Emmaus, again, the two disciples distraught. Jesus said to them, foolish ones, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's everything. He's our all in all. This means Jesus is the final prophet. He will say to us all that God wants to say to us. He's the word. One takeaway. In this life, beloved, many voices will compete for your attention and your affection and your fervency and your passion and your love. They will try to sell you some promise. They will try to sell you some kind of glory, some form of glory, but in all actuality, in the end, all it brings you is Harm. Harm. But true, heavenly, benevolent, never-ending, everlasting glory is found in only one. And he's standing here alone now with his disciples. The entirety of your life and mine is Christ what? Alone. Christ alone alone. It's Jesus alone. He is the word made flesh. We must listen to him. Not to the voices of the world bidding you to come. Come to him. So here, these disciples, having received difficult, challenging instructions from the Lord, very hard teachings of the Lord, for a moment in time, they're allowed to look beyond the cross to the crown. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. They're, they're enabled here for a brief moment to look beyond the rejection to the reward. They're able to look beyond the thorns to the throne for just a moment in time. This is what he gives them. So we too must be reminded this day, beloved that we must, as we travel through this life, we must look beyond the temporal. We must look beyond any suffering or scorn that we'll receive as followers of Jesus Christ and look to the glory that awaits. Now, you may be thinking, well, if I had an experience like that, it'd be a lot easier. (laughs) 
Hmm. You know, Peter, James, and John, look, they had a much more difficult task than you and I will ever have. Now, that's a natural feeling. But let me encourage you as we close up. Even Peter, later on, writing the, insp- by the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes and he says, you actually have something better than this experience. So we'll go back where we started. Second Peter. Okay, remember? Peter, Second Peter. He, he's describing this experience. He said, look, man, I'm telling you, we were there, we saw it, we heard it. And, verse 19, we have something more sure than that. Did you catch that? The prophetic word, notice, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that, all, that, that, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what you have in your lap. And that's more sure than even the experience, not just an experience, this is an experience of of an apostle. And that apostle goes on to say, the one who spoke up not knowing what to say, he knows what to say by this time. (laughs) And he says, you have something more sure. The prophetic word. The Old Testament, the New Testament, together are more sure than anyone's experience, including Peter's. That's what he said. You have the word. He's the rock. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. Stand on him. Trust in him. Believe him in the midst of suffering. Some people lost loved ones in the last 24 hours. Uh, People have loved ones who, who are wandering in rebellion. Lean on him. Trust in him. Trust in his word. Well, if they only saw a miracle. No. Remember Jesus? What he taught us? Jesus taught us the lesson about the man in hell. The man in hell who pleaded, please send Lazarus to my unbelieving family. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my unbelieving family. Warn them, warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Because I tell you, if someone will just go there to their house and knock on the door, someone from the dead, they will repent. To which Abraham replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's the word of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus gives that teaching about Abraham and he far preceded Moses and the prophets. He's the God of the living, not the dead. So Peter says, you do well to pay attention to the word because it's like a light. You live in a dark place, the word's like a light. It is the light. It's the only light you have until the morning star rises right here and he brings with him his radiant glory and his eternal kingdom. That's all that's left. It's the same Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, who we love and serve, presently by faith, not by sight. You have spiritual eyes, but the time will come upon his return when we, he'll, we will see him with what um, theologians call the beatific vision. In his fullness, in his glory, it's the highest of all blessings that he could possibly bestow on us, beloved. 
And before we partake of the communion table, listen to this. Someday, Christian, someday, according to Philippians 3.21, according to 1 John 3, verse 2, we ourselves will appear in a body like unto his glorious body. And you know what else the scripture says? In Matthew chapter 13, verse, verse 43, we, we believers, will shine like the sun. S-U-N. Slash, capital S-O-N. In the kingdom of our Lord. They got a taste. With a glorified body, with glorified eyes, with which we will be able to gaze upon the glorified Christ. All who are in Christ, that's yours. That's a guarantee. So in the meantime, it's a long meantime, isn't it? Sometimes, but it's not. I was talking to my wife last night. This life, I'm like, this life is so short. I I, I watch news. I watch sports. I, I like to watch brilliant people do their thing. There's a lot of brilliant, gifted people. I'm talking news stuff, news commentary. I watch it and I feel like an idiot half the time. I go to bed feeling like an idiot. However, I'm like, man, I get to do the most glorious thing there is. It's eternal. And it's proclaiming the word of the eternal God in Christ. And this life of fame is like a dot. And that line of eternity never stops. And it's like if you waste your life, quoting, let's John Piper quote, don't waste your life because it's short. You could go out and try to attain fame. And man, when you're gone, your fame don't go with you. That's it. You might, your face might be on a stamp. What's that? (laughs) This is what we have. So in the meantime, in the meantime, whatever we may suffer for the sake of the cross, whatever we may suffer for the name of Christ, whatever we may suffer just in the midst of life itself, living in a fallen, broken world, you can be certain that in Christ alone, you will find strength far greater than any challenge you will ever face. Amen? Because he came and he had to die and suffer, rise again.